This is SAFM. Yay! Thanks very much, Greg. Indeed, it is SAFM and this is uh, the Enviro Show. With me, Nancy Richards, with Cassie Lowers, with Kim Winter, and we're all with you right through until 10 o'clock. And the good news is that it's Kim's birthday, so we're having an extra specially lovely programme today. So happy birthday. Well, what we've got on the show tonight, let me share with you our lineup. First up, gold dust hits the lungs of the Riverley community, seriously causing sores and asthma, TB and dead gardens. We're going to be talking to Rueda Miller. She's a community worker for Empowering the Riverley Community Project to find out just a little bit more about that. Better news, though, for rural communities here in Africa, in South Africa, is that Samsung have just unveiled a solar-powered mobile health clinic. Pretty much ready to roll, so we're checking out the details on that one. And after that, plastic. Well, the conference presently underway in Johannesburg is called Plastic, the Future for Growth. So clearly it looks like we're going to be seeing more of it, not less of it. But in what form? We'll find out that from a, a Petco CEO. And also we're talking to somebody from the SA Plastic Recycling Company to find out about not so much its future as its past and how we combine the two. And finally, on recycling in our green goodie today, it's a, a rather clever way of recycling textiles. We'll be talking to a young lady who's really put her mind to that. So stay with us for all of that. And if you would like to get in touch with us at any stage right now during the programme, you can do that. We're on 08 0892102010. If, however, you would like to uh, talk to us at, at a later stage, you can always send us an email. We're at enviro at safm.co.za or find us on Facebook. We're on the Enviro Show on SAFM. It's got a tiny little bit of eco info for you, which came from one of our Facebook listeners, um, Kenya, in fact, Kenya Ngonyama, who says, What's your opinion on painting roofs with white paint? because she says the founders of the White Roof Project in New York say that if more roofs were painted white, less energy would be used to cool down buildings since the white paint reflects light instead of absorbing it. Well, I don't know what your take is on that. Sounds like a good call to me, but I don't know if there are any scientists out there who perhaps have got uh, you know, a slightly better educated viewpoint on it. White roofs, is it going to help us uh, conserve energy if we all painted our rooftops white? Or, or maybe just planted them green. Maybe that would be a better idea too. But give us a, give us your thoughts on that one between now and ten o'clock. Uh, pop us a pop us an email. No, don't pop us an email because we'll, we'll find it. But give us a call on oh eight nine two ten twenty ten, or send us a message on Facebook. It's uh, the Enviro Show on SAFM. Moving, moving, moving right along. Moving right along. We've definitely got gremlins in the works. It's obviously it's, it's Kim's birthday that's doing all the She needs to go and blow out her candles, and I'm sure everything will be just fine. Let's start off then with gold dust. Well, Riverley, as you possibly know, made famous by uh, Chris Van Vake, author of Shirley, Goodness and Mercy, is more recently famous for slightly less appealing reasons. Residents in this community, which have was built around a mine that I think was there way back in the 1900s, they are now suffering from sores and asthma, TB, persistent coughs and garden and dead gardens in which trees are bearing deformed and inedible fruit. And the reason it's thought is because the old gold mine dump is being broken down to reclaim what's left of the precious metal, releasing all sorts of toxic gases and dust into the air. Well, tell us a little bit more about it. On the line, we have Rueda Miller. She is a community worker for the Empowering Riverley Community Project. Hi, Rueda. 
Hi there. Can you hear me, Rueda? Okay, I'm not sure if she's there. It sounds, it sounds like we've got something on the line, but it might not be Rueda. But it's a terrible story, I have to say, and it's not the first sort of story that we've heard from areas that are close to mines or, or difficult places. Um, and, but, you know, if maybe there's something similar going on in your area, it could be that your lungs are being polluted without you even knowing it. It seems that the Riverley community have got wind of this, not, not for all the right reasons, I have to tell you. There are people with persistent coughs, people are breaking out in sores, and I think the story of uh, the dead gardens and... Uh, the effect it must be having on the children must be too terrible. So we're going to try and... Oh, I think we might have her back on the line. Rueda. Hi, good evening. Hi, nice to have you with us. Thanks very much. Rueda, this is a terrible story. Um, and just give us an indication of how long it's been going on. At what point did people wake up to the fact that um, they were basically being polluted? Okay, because what actually happened here, Nancy, is I actually had my wake-up call in August of 2010. But apparently, you know, they had previous mining meetings of which the community weren't really aware of it. And in this regard, you know, I feel that uh, the mining company as well as our former ward councillor had to consult, consult, consult to uh, make the whole community aware of the re-mining in our area. Okay, so it was as a result of the re-mining, the, the re-mining from what I understand is about breaking down the old mine. Just explain the process. Yeah, because what actually happens is uh, we are situated on the West Rand, you know, not far from the FNB Stadium. We are actually, you know, amongst sailing dams and mine dumps. It was previously E-Trend Mining Companies, but now it is a DRD, Recovery Gold Mine. What actually happens is uh, they are remining, and, uh, you know, previously they have removed mine dumps. And that was a much better process, which actually, you know, did not last so long. But now currently that they are uh, finding gold dust on these mines, they have actually prolonged the process. And uh, we are encountering serious, serious dust problems. You know, um, uh, smells coming from the area, acid mine drainage. We've got such a lot of in, in, incompetent behavior regarding the mining. Just explain to me, though, how it works. When the, with the, them remining, does that mean that they're disturbing the whole mine? How does it work? They're disturbing the whole mine due to the fact that they are actually, you know, getting the dump down, you know, removing the sludge and the sand to, to actually take you through to the uh, plant in, in, in Crown Gold, Crown Mines. But, uh, you know, the process is the water sprays which is not actually serving the, the purpose of, uh, you know, reducing the dust in our area. So uh, what actually happens is we are encountering a lot of problems with the dust. We are living in this area for almost 50 years, you know, and the mine dump has been in our area when we moved in here, you know, when we were moved from uh, the fire town to Reveille Extension. Uh, these mine dumps were already existing in the area, but they had all these wheat planted on them to try and prevent the dust blowing when we had heavy winds. So it's so it's all sort of started started up again just recently. Now you say that it was around about twenty ten August twenty ten when the remining started that people started to feel the effects. When I actually noticed that they were busy reminding, it could have happened previously, but we yeah. weren't aware of it, Nancy. Yeah. 
but I only noticed it when they came, you know, around to the front where our houses are situated. And this is when I noticed and how I actually had my wake-up call is when my daughter could not breathe, my granddaughter could not breathe this specific morning. And uh, when I actually took her to doctor, uh, you know, they actually uh, told me that uh, it's a dust inhalation and she was diagnosed with severe bronchitis, you know, and uh, we can't directly point it to the mm-hmm. mining because we haven't had any studies done, done to say that, yes, mining has affected us. Has anybody been to measure the air pollution levels in the area? Uh, there has, there's a company that has been, uh, you know, uh, doing the air pollution monitoring, but we don't have the results. The community are not made aware of the results. So we as the community are also left in the dark, and I must also just say, Nancy, that we do not have that open communication as far as mining and the communities are concerned. So there's no direct communication between yourselves and, and DRD Gold? No direct communication, not unless we actually try and get hold of them, especially when we have heavy winds blowing, the dust pollution, noise disturbance. At this point in time, as I'm talking to you, there's a conveyor belt that goes, so there is also a noise pollution going on 24-7. Yeah. So it's it's pretty uncomfortable for everybody. From yeah. what we read, and we read this um, we read this piece in the uh, the Mail and Guardian some little while ago. So I'm sure you probably saw that as well. It seems to have been quite a lot of reports. It's not just your own family. I think there are maybe other people who've had. There's one gentleman who seems to have have had marks on his arm. Somebody else has reported a vegetable garden that's producing deformed vegetables and fruit. Have you have you been sort of monitoring the um, the, the, all these incidents? Uh, Yes, what we actually did uh, in the past, I had public meetings with the community in order to uh, communicate to them what is taking place and also alert them and you know educate them in a way, Nancy. Due to the fact that nobody's, uh, not all of the communities are aware of the remining in our area, and they don't know what the consequences are. So we need to, you know, uh, convey messages, bring them up to date. What I have actually found out, you know, during the processes of going to workshops and try and educate myself regarding the things that's happening in our area. And what have you, what have you found in your and self-education? What have you discovered? I have learned a lot, you know, that there's, uh, due to the fact that they are finding gold dust, you know, there's uh, silica in the sand, you know, and as, that is blowing, it actually, you know, uh, contributes to the ailing, which is, you know, the the chronically ill patient Mm. who suffers from TB, suffers from asthma, because all our common complaints are skin irritation, eye irritation, dry nose and chest, you know, and this continuous coughing of the kids. And uh, like you said, you know, there's complaints about uh, residents in our area who has all these funny sores and things on their bodies, especially the young ones, the little ones who plays in the sand. Yeah. The, the concern, I'm, you know, obviously it's manifesting and, and showing itself in human beings, but it's quite a concern that it seems to be damaging. One, one doesn't know, as you say, it's quite difficult to sort of point fingers, but 
that it should be uh, causing the trees, in some cases trees not to grow, in other cases vegetables and deformed fruit. Uh, you know, if it's actually getting into the soil, um, it could be extremely dangerous. Do you have any indication if that's as a direct result? Yes, because what actually happens is I used to have a veggie garden and I had to discontinue that due to the fact that uh, the vegetables are not growing properly. You know, before it actually uh, bears fruit, it's already dead. So what actually happens is, Nancy, there's been so many, uh, uh, you know, uh, environmentalists from other areas coming out to Rivoli, you know, seeing that we've now been so disturbed by the mine dumps. Uh, and they are actually doing their tests and things, but we never, ever get the feedback. So we basically have left in the dark because we have not the resources to do it on our own accord. You know, we can't really get into this argument without the other side, and, you know, perhaps next week we'll see if we can get hold of the company. But it seems strange that the uh, the people who have come to test, are have, have they uh, been told not to give you information? Uh, no, uh, they could be, but, you know, I'm not aware of that, Nancy. And uh, what actually happens is, you know... Uh, we have a counsellor and we have tried to work through her to try and obtain this information and we have also tried to get involved with DRD Goal directly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were told distinctively to our faces that they, they need to work through one NGO, which is our Enviro part, and, you know, nothing gets channeled through to us okay. as the community. And that one NGO is, sorry, what's it called? Enviro? Enviro Parks. Enviro Parks. Yes. And have you been in touch with the Department of Environmental Affairs? Uh, no, we have not been. Okay. Is it just yourselves in your particular community or are there other communities in similar situations? I'm just thinking of there being sort of more power in numbers. Uh, yes, because what actually happens is uh, ever since this situation has been highlighted, uh, we have uh, had workshops. And I have recently visited Davidsonville, which is also a community that's badly affected. So is uh, Dipkloof, Noordgezig, you know, and these are all the areas on the West Rand. Mm. It seems like the um, it seems like this is not a situation that a situation that's going to blow away quite literally. I I think, um, Rueda, we're going to see if we can get hold of the company perhaps next week and see if we can get some response from them. And certainly, it would be good to know about the people who are are measuring the air pollution in that area because it, it doesn't seem quite right. But as I say, we're not really in a position to be pointing any fingers at this stage. But thank you and very best of luck. In the meantime, the uh, organisation that you're working through. Uh, is yourselves the Empowering Riverly Community Project. Is everybody in the community behind you? Yes, definitely. I do have their 100% support. If anybody would like to make contact with you directly, how can they do that? Uh, this would be via my cell phone number. Unfortunately, I don't have an email, uh, you know, that okay. I, I haven't set up one yet. Okay. I'm in the process of that. So as soon as I have that available, Nancy, I will forward it to yourself or Kim. All right. Or are you happy for us to give out your cell phone number? And not a problem at all. Okay, well, let me do that. 
Rueda, very best of luck, and uh, I hope you get some satisfaction on that, because certainly I'm thinking it's all, one thing, the way it's affecting adults, but I'm thinking that those children are definitely going to be affected. So let's hope you get some success on that, and we'll see what we can do to follow it up this side. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very Take much. Care. I do appreciate it, and this is what my concerns are, you know, our younger generation. Yes, Nancy. yes, absolutely. Rueda Miller, thank you very much. And uh, thank you. Uh, could I just rectify you? My surname is Mills, M-I-L-L-S. Okay, so sorry. Yes, Got it. Okay, Rueda Mills, thanks. thank you very much. And Rueda is a community worker for Empowering uh, Riverley Community. And uh, if you would like to get hold of her directly, the number is 83 4850 and we'll see what we can do. Um, certainly we will try and get hold of DR, uh, DR, DRD Gold, but if we can't, we'll see what else we can do. And maybe you've got some thoughts on that particular issue, because I, I suspect it, there in the West Rand it's clearly a problem, but there may be other areas around the country where they could be suffering as a result of mining or other activities that's certainly polluting their air, and I think it's a very, very dangerous thing. And if you'd like to give us a call on it right now, you're welcome. 0892 10 2010. 0892 10 2010. If you want to do it off the air, find us on Facebook. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, bad news for one urban community, but better news for many rural communities across uh, Africa and South Africa is that Samsung, the electronic people, have just unveiled a solar-powered mobile health clinic. That was at the Grand Parade in Cape Town, part of their annual Samsung Africa Forum. Well, the electronics giant has set itself a goal to reach one million people through health centres by 2015, and that's quite a tall order. Um, as part of its broader CSR goal to positively impact the lives of 5 million people in Africa by 2015. Though uh, it has to be said that the original goal was to focus on education, um, building solar-powered schools, and that was in line with their Hope for the Children initiative. But it seems that without healthy children, there's no good having schools, so they've switched their focus. Well, earlier I spoke to Kia Betswe uh, Modimweng, and he's Corporate Citizenship Manager, to find out more. So as Samsung, we are very much you know, active in the advancement of education in the continent. As an electronics provider and electronics technological company, we believe that we need to change and revolutionize the way teaching and learning occurs in our classrooms. We need to bring 21st century teaching and learning solutions, and we started this with the solar-powered internet school. Now, with the solar-powered internet school, we really wanted to bridge the divide, to make it a point that learners in the utmost rural areas will have the same amount and the same exposure to internet connectivity as a learner in the best private school in town. And building on the, on the solar consciousness that we, we've adopted, we then came with a solar power generator. It's an enabler to, to power schools which do not have electricity at all, but they have brick and mortar structures. So we can equip those schools with our e-learning center and use our solar power generator to power not only the e-learning center, but a couple of other classrooms to bring electrification to the schools. But in the process of doing that, we realized that you know, health and education cannot be detached because one is directly linked to the other and has a direct impact on the other. And we thought that performance in, in most cases is often affected not only by issues of, of, of a learner commitment or participation in class, but there are some you know, underlying health issues at play. You know, for an example, with the Solar Powered Health Center, you'd find that in a school, you know, learner Mary is sitting at the back of the class. 
The learner is not aware that she has a hearing problem. The parents are not aware because when they call the learner, the learner always responds, and the teacher as well. But this learner does not grasp, does not perform well academically because she cannot hear properly. But through the intervention of our Solar Powered Health Center, you know, the promotion of proactive uh, medical examinations, be it ear, you know, eye and blood analysis, or even dental, learners can be identified. Mary, because you have this problem, please occupy a front row seat. And as a result, it is prone to bring, you know, an impact in how Mary performs academically because she's positioned in the right place. You know, but building on to that as well, Solar Powered Health Centre, we offer various solutions. We are now building, as we speak, mother and child clinic because we realize that Africa has very high percentages of birth mortalities. We cannot, as a corporate, wait by the wayside and say it's the responsibility of government. But let us bring a solution and through our partnerships with health ministries, universities and NGOs across the continent, we can build up on an existing solution. So we have this wonderful bright blue um, truck or van or, or yes. a mobile healthcare yes. clinic. It's this particular one deals with what and in what way is it solar powered is it the medical equipment that's solar powered explain exactly how you how it works the truck that we have here before us is you know it features a dental a clinic it features the ear testing clinic and eye and blood analyzer you know the reason why we included an eye and blood analyzer is because there are hereditary illnesses you know learners who then grow up coming from a family with a diabetic history she does not know that she inherited that and she just lives through the rest of her life eating wrong wrong food types and all through proactive interventions knowing one status you know it's very important because those can be solved with this track uh, on the, on the part of solar and how the solar then gets to to work medical equipment consume a lot of energy i mean you would know there are various researches going on globally to try and come with solutions which consume less but because of the risk factor you can imagine during an operation or a tooth extraction then power goes off that's not what you want so in our solution we have three sources of power options we have an unleaded fuel keeping up to our green consciousness an unleaded fuel petrol generator you know the one that would then power and complement the solar system and we also have an external power option you know where you can just plug in electricity so it's an interface nice hybrid where solar functions optimally the generator can also keep energy at those levels and then we also have that option if it will be working in areas from time to time with electricity to just plug in a little bit the actual equipment in there it's all solar powered but it can be backed up in case there's not enough uh, solar power stored we're sitting it's a beautiful sunny day it's not always like this certainly not in Cape Town but elsewhere across Africa do you have storage facilities for this the solar power stored is the solar energy stored in some way definitely the solar powered you know through inverters and all is then stored in specialized batteries that we use to make sure that when it's raining it does not mean it's you know when days are dark then there's no way of getting around the unit so it, it saves power you know when it's raining when it's at night at least there's still some power to to tap from on the batteries and then immediately when the sun comes we can you know charge the batteries simultaneously as we are busy working on this is the prototype i'm assuming yes. this is prior to the mother and child one yes. where will this go and how often will it travel to which areas it's a big country 
our focus you know is very much africa africa wide so this these units will then be in, in south africa in southern africa traveling with across our provinces in partnerships with various universities health ministry you know even at provincial levels you know and we will then be deploying other units to our various regions you know in east africa in west africa to make it a point that whatever we do cascades across the whole continent how many units have you got at this stage this is the prototype and then we are busy with the mother and child clinic and before we even roll out to other areas we are busy also with our R&D we need to know a particular market in East Africa what, what do you need do you need mother and child more than the dental you know how can we structure the unit for your needs do you need it on a 4 by 4 suspension because of the deep rural areas or do you need it in the existing suspension we definitely do not employ a one size fits all approach because we wanted to have as much impact as possible. How long will it spend or how long is it anticipated that it will spend in each particular community? That's also, you know, part of the, you know, the whole partner ecosystem that we have. For an example, let's say it's in a particular province, the, the local health ministry would say we have a shortage, you know, people in village X have never been or attended in any way on, a dental, on dental equipment. If that's the case, we know that, ah, then it means it, it's an area which needs more attention. Then through partnerships with government, those NGOs, we deploy dental professionals with the unit for an extended period because of the particular need in that area but with other areas they will say no maybe it's sufficient to keep it there for a week it will come back on a rotational basis over and above the existing healthcare facilities so we really would like to engage all partners so that we don't just dump it and then it has minimal impact whereas it could be somewhere helping uh, more communities i see you've got a flat screen screen tv here so it can even when people are waiting outside, they can catch up on, on what? We, you know, we have electri electrical awnings, you know, the ones that would just come out to make sure that as patients are waiting, they are not in the sun, but there's some amount of, you know, reasonable amount of shade. It, it actually extends quite longer than that. And then what we do with the TV then to cultivate the culture of sports, you know, they'll be watching sports because we believe that uh, healthy minds are housed in healthy bodies and, you know, and the other way around. We'll be playing healthy lifestyle videos will be playing various offerings so when do you see it's going to be when will it be out there and doing what it needs to do this one is a complete turnkey solution it's a plug and play we are just unveiling it at the samsung forum of 2013 so next week when the forum is completed you will see it somewhere in the roads helping communities it's ready for action Sure is, and what a neat little track it is too. It's uh, it's really quite obviously it's a prototype at this stage, but there could be those all around the country. What a good call that would be. That was Kiabetswe Modimoing. He was a corporate citizen, citizenship manager at Samsung. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about what they do generally, but in particular about the solar-powered uh, mobile health clinics, check check their site. It's www.samsung.com. Samsung. Com. And I'd just like to say thanks very much to uh, the guys who have phoned in about the White Roof Project. Well, it's obviously got people thinking, but it seems that it's not quite as simple as it seems. I don't think it's just sort of a yes, it does or no, it doesn't work answer. That's the White Roof Project in New York, who say that if more roofs were white, less energy would be used to cool down the buildings since white paint, ref paint reflects light instead of absorbing it. I think that's another one maybe for next week. We might dip our noses to a tin of paint or a couple of paint companies and see if we can find out a little bit more on that. But right now you're listening to the Enviro Show. This is SAFM.
And here on the Enviro Show on SAFM, let's move ourselves up to Johannesburg. Well, currently underway at NASREC in Joburg is ProPlast 2013. It's the industry-specific plastic exhibition. The theme, if I understand it right, is uh, the future of growth. So it seems that plastic is going to be very much part of our future. And some of the topics at the uh, panel discussions that they've been having there uh, certainly indicate that it's going to be part of our future. The one was called the uh, Growing the South African Plastics Industry. Another one is What Impacts on the Plastic Packaging and Are Plastics Sustainable? Well, very big questions, and hopefully we're going to get some answers. We have on the line Cherie Skolt. She's CEO of Petco. Uh, I think she's with us. Hi, Cherie. Hello. Good Na- evening. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. I would imagine you must be pretty tired. I think the uh, conference is soon coming to a close. Yes, indeed. It actually, we had a, a conference all day yesterday, mm-hmm. and the show continued today, the exhibition of equipment and manufacturers. What was the purpose, or what is the purpose of it? I mean, uh, uh, for, what's it called? The future of growth. Plastic is the future of growth. I mean, we see that there's going to be more plastic in an industrial sense. Well... I think that it's really clear that we can't count on a plastic-free future. You know, if you look at our cell phones and our cars and our airplanes, the Dreamliner, plastic really has an increasing role to play in a modern, convenient lifestyle. But we have to look at what we do with it at the end of its useful life and make sure that we, we treat it responsibly. It's interesting to hear you say we can't count on a plastic-free future as if that would be the ideal. What would be the alternative? I don't know that there would be an alternative mm. if if we want to continue to grow and to live the convenient lifestyle that we want to live uh, as people. If consumers carry on the way that they are, that's really the the trend for growth. And as long as we look at the material from a sustainable way and make sure that we treat it responsibly, I think there are many pluses. Yes, and as long as the manufacturers take responsibility for the end result as well. So we've become a sort of plastic-dependent society, and in many respects, environmentally speaking, I suppose it's not a bad thing because plastic is a whole lot lighter than many other materials, making it lighter to transport um, QED. We have less, uh, you, you know, less fuel is being used. But plastic itself, the the raw material is what? Where are we extruding plastic from? Well, most plastics are made from, they come from crude, from oil, mm. or from natural gas. But in reality, we use far more oil just in driving our cars. So every trip that we make to the supermarket uses far more fossil fuel than the packaging and the products that we may buy there on any trip. So I think it's also a question of looking at the role in perspective. So there's, and obviously there's plastic, plastic and plastic, as we know. Anybody who's been to a recycling depot will know that there are a million and one different types of plastic. Mm. So I suppose it's what you're looking at. But what about the process of producing plastic? How, how uh, environmentally friendly, how energy uh, demanding is it? Nancy, that's a, uh, not really a question that I would find easy to answer. I think you may be speaking to Anna B. Later, who has a, a chemical background, and, and she may be able to answer that better than I am able. Okay, yes, because she's also going to be talking us, to, to us about what happens to plastic when it's past its sell-by date. 
Um, you say that it's becoming increasingly used, and we're very uh, specific about the fact that this exhibition is industry-specific. Is industry using it more and more? And are, as consumers, are we seeing it less and less? I mean, we tend not to be perhaps so conscious of it as perhaps you guys in the industry who would be very aware of it. Well, you know, the, the plastic that I'm most f familiar with is PET, or polyethylene terephthalate, which is a plastic used primarily in the packaging industry, and it's the plastic that's used to bottle carbonated soft drinks, mineral water, um, concentrated juices, your, your trays that you find in supermarkets for salads and sandwich packs. So it plays a very key role in the prevention of food wastage. And, of course, the other role that packaging plays is it keeps food safe and sealed. And it also informs, it informs consumers about what they're buying, what the sell-by date is, what the contents are. So that's the particular form of plastic that, that I work with. You say that it keeps food safe and it seals it and it protects it from other things. But does it, is there nothing in the plastic that leaches out either into the food or the liquid that it's containing? Not in, in PET, no. Okay. Are there, what sort of legislation is there? I feel as if I'm putting you through the third degree here, but just trying to get a, a handle on how plastic uh, conscious we need to be. What sort of legislation is there around plastic, uh, plastic and food? Well, I can t tell you about the, the legislation that regards the waste management part of it. In 2009 in South Africa, we got a new Waste Management Act and what that act actually does, it provides framework legislation that has changed the waste hierarchy in South Africa. Up until 2009, municipalities had a mandate to collect municipal solid waste and dispose it, of it at landfill. That hierarchy has now changed. And in fact, now it's reduce, reuse, recycle, recover for energy, that which can't be used further up the hierarchy, and then only send to landfill, which absolutely has to go there. So that is, is a significant change in approach that we are facing as a society because ultimately our use of packaging and the responsible disposal of it is all of our responsibility. It doesn't belong with any one part. It's a combination and a shared responsibility, if you like, between industry, government, consumers, retailers. It's the whole value chain. Yes, uh, one of the questions that was asked, or at least at one of the panel discussions, I think the question is, are plastics sustainable? Um, that, that's quite a complicated question in itself, in as much as if we're using crude oil to create plastic, um, having to look at its, its whole lifespan. Was there an answer to that? What were some of the key issues that came up around that? Well, again, if I use PET as a specific example, we are currently recycling 45% of post-consumer beverage PET in South Africa. That was our recycling rate for 2012. Now, the, the larger portion of that is recycled into fiber because PET is actually part of the polyester chain, of which we're all familiar. We use it in textiles and clothing. And the other end-use market that we have we call bottle-to-food grade or bottle-to-bottle where a percentage of recycled material co can go back into food-grade packaging. Now, that's a sustainable use of plastic because, effectively, you can reuse that bottle again and again and again. So you don't have to keep extracting raw material. 
you can extract a, a lesser amount to use it. In addition, the industry is working very hard to make bottles lighter and lighter. So in the last 10 years, PET bottles have become 30% lighter. Mm. So the reduce and the reuse and the recycling is, is very much a part of the industry's strategy. It feels almost, Sheree, like you're working with the good guy. You know, the, the PET, there's 45% post-consumer recycling. It's, it's all sounding very good. But I'm thinking, I don't know how, how long plastic has been in use, but I'm thinking of, of, of going to small towns where there are shops just filled with plastic. If you go to the east, you see whole streets that are filled with plastic. Mm. And this is not necessarily good guy plastic at all. I go back to the legislation question. Is there any legislation about what sort of plastic it is okay to be producing here in South Africa, and are there any plastic that it's not okay to be producing? I think there isn't, there isn't legislation about that at the moment, no, other than the general food safety regulations. You know, there are standards about what is safe for food-grade content. But I think that more and more around the world... There are packaging directives. You have the Australian Packaging Covenant. You have the European Directive in Europe. And there's a growing awareness that we, with the huge process of urbanization, we can't continue to live the way that we have been. Yeah. And I think that it's an ongoing process. It's becoming more aware. Consumers are becoming more aware. They're making more selective choices when they go shopping. You know, we, we are hoping that eventually consumers will look at packs in a supermarket and, and it will guide their choice of what to choose. But it's going to be a process because, for example, there are some plastics used in packaging that have a role in food preservation that's really important. So if you're making a plastic package that's possibly made of multiple plastics, but it can extend the life of a joint of meat for a week or two weeks and thereby prevent food wastage. When you start looking at the life cycle assessment of that product, it becomes more important for the carbon footprint saved in the extended food life of that product than in the pack. So whilst we grow and improve, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, yeah, if yeah. I could put it that way. Yeah. But we do need to improve all the time. I'm not sure who would be considered a world leader. You know, I'm sort of I mentioned the East there, and I think of how much plastic comes out of China. I'm, you know, the first world country is certainly very plastic dependent. And I think there was quite a lot of international interest around the uh, pro-plas. Yes. Are we, uh, how do we measure up in terms of in world standards in our use and uh, careful management of the plastic industry? Well, I think in, in Europe, if I remember correctly, the statistic that I heard was something like, 65 million tons of plastics are produced. In South Africa, 1.3 million tons of plastics are currently produced, of which 600,000 are used in the packaging industry. So we have far lower per capita use of, of plastic packaging, or all packaging for that matter. Um, there has been a trend that the growth of packaging has actually been less than the, than the growth of GDP, and that's a reflection of lightweighting and reduction because it actually makes economic sense for businesses to reduce the amount that they invest in packaging. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's an economic debate. But if I look at, for example, again, I'm, I'm going back to my area of knowledge, the, the rate of PET recycling, 
We're doing really very well. You know, by 2015, we intend to recycle 50% of all our post-consumer beverage PET. And there are not that many countries in the world doing that, and more specifically doing it at home, because we don't collect and export our bottles. We actually collect them and recycle them here. So last year, the 50,000 tons that we collected created between 30 to 40,000 indirect job opportunities. Mm. It injected almost 200 million rand into the economy on a collection basis, and previously that would have, have gone to waste. And then in terms of the secondary products that it produced, that injected nearly half a billion rand into the economy. That's a quite interesting statistic, Cherie. Thank you very much. Going to leave it at that. Cherie Skoltz, she's uh, with Petco. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more, it's petco.co.za. Thanks very much, Cherie. Well, we've got Annabie Pretorius on the line, who is actually looking at the other end of plastic, uh, certainly uh, in terms of its future. She's with the South African Plastic Recycling Organisation. Hi there, Annabie. Yes, good evening, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. And I'm sure you were able to hear what Cherie had to say there. I suppose that, you, you know, where, as Cherie quite rightly says, it's really up to the consumer. You know, it's all about us. If we have a demand for a lot of plastic, it's going to be there. If we if we don't demand it so much, people will find other ways. But you're really involved in recycling. And now, from that, is that from an industrial point of view or is that from homeowners' point of view? Yeah, yeah, that's from an industrial point of view, but obviously we need the homeowners, otherwise we don't have any plastic to recycle. Yeah. What is the lifespan? It's a difficult question because, I, as I pointed out myself, there are so many different types of plastic. But we had somebody on the programme just a little while ago saying there isn't a plastic bag that hasn't been manufactured that has biodegraded. In other words, every plastic bag that's ever been made is still on this planet because it hasn't yet Ooh. biodegraded. It was a scary thought, wasn't it? <laughs> no, but that's not correct. Is that not correct? Put us right. Put yeah, us I, right. Can, I can definitely say that that is not correct. Okay. I myself have done numerous trials by just pegging a, a plastic shopping bag onto my washing line. Oh, yeah? And the maximum lifespan that I could get out of it in summer months, which in Gauteng is, is more cloudy than, than our winter months, was eight weeks. So within eight weeks, that little bag is so damaged in the sun that it just breaks up and if you touch it it's just a white powder in your hand okay so then it just reduces so, to powder and then it goes it, into the ground is it not still in some way toxic is it, it is, so- it's not toxic no okay. it's that minted pieces of plastic are still there but it's not this visible ugly piece of flour draped on a fence okay um and- if it's buried it is a different story okay. so if we bury them in landfill and that's why landfill is not the preferred choice for any plastic product mm. At the same time, we don't really want washing lines full of plastic bags, do we? I suppose we, there needs to be... Um, but I, I, I mean, I hear what you say. So if we bury our rubbish, it's going to take even longer to... It is going yeah. to take, because there's, there's nothing... And, and in most landfalls, it's, it's anaerobic, because the moment we've covered it with soil and we compacted it, nothing lives there, not even the organisms that are supposed to eat the paper and everything else we throw away. So, so landfill was really a solution to to bury our sins, mm. uh, but it's not a solution of the future. No. What is the solution of the future? Is there? I, I know that you are more chemically minded. Is there any way in which we can accelerate the biodegradable lifespan of something? We can accelerate that process. We don't really want it to biodegrade because um, I heard Cherie told you that it's made from oil. Yeah. 
And as we know, oil is, is quite a valuable natural resource. Um, so if one use energy and, and a natural resource to make a product, now let, let's take a milk bottle because I think we all can associate and it doesn't have these negative connotations as a carrier bag. Yeah. So we've made this milk bottle. It contains 50 grams of, of solid material. It contains some energy. So why do we want it to biodegrade and it all disappears? We actually want to recover the material as long as we can and, and there's a general belief, and, and we find it in practice as well, that you can recycle plastics comfortably about three times. Um, and then after that, the, the strength of the material deteriorates to such an extent that you cannot make the same product again. Oh, okay. And then you can recover the energy. And, and that's what Europe is doing, um, and that's why they can quote high what they call recovery rates. Because by then, they then recover the energy and they turn it into a steam or they turn it into heat. Or they, uh, what, what's more attractive for, from a separate point of view, mm-hmm. turn it then into a fuel or nafta or something that you can use again for the next process. The energy that's required to, well, firstly, the recovery, but then the process of turning it into, you know, transforming it into something else. I would imagine that that's quite high, but, but it's the lesser of the two evils, perhaps. Yeah, it's a lesser of the two evils. You're 100% right, because to to take a a product and recycle it into another product, the energy that you consume to do that is, and and the figures vary, it depends. I mean, we're living in a coal-driven energy society, and there's a whole lot of factors, but you're talking at least half of that than to make it out of a virgin material. So energy-wise, it makes more sense to recycle. We've seen, well, certainly, certainly not so much these days, but we've seen a lot of um, compacted plastic. You know, it's used sometimes for sort of uh, uh, park benches. It's used for railings. It, it always seems to me to be a very sort of, it, it seems to be such an unbelievably good idea. That's a good way of getting rid of all that plastic. Uh, how how uh, user-friendly is that or how environmentally friendly is that process? That process is, is absolutely great, and, and the, uh, the big advantage of that process, it, if one look at the total market of recycled plastics in South Africa, it's less than 1%. So all the other products that, that we do recycle or use recycled plastics to make, we, we don't actually see because there's this perception. I mean, shoe soles, for example, um, we don't have manufacturers of shoes in South Africa that use 100% virgin material for shoe soles. It's all containing recycled content, and, and the most of them is actually 100% recycled. Now, as a consumer, when I buy a pair of expensive shoes, and the box says this is recycled plastic on the shoe soles, you see, that, so these, we sit on this knife edge. If we tell the public that, that they buy recycled material, they don't want it. Yeah because they don't actually think of these shoe soles as plastic. Um, so do we market that and tell that, or do we show them things like park benches, which is less than 1% of the end use? Uh, but to come back to your question, yes, it, it, it's a fantastic uh, end use, and what makes it so attractive as well, because of all these zillions different types of plastics, the park bench process allows us to put, mixed materials. And you heard Cherie also talk about multiple plastic products. Um, so if you start looking at things like your cheese packaging, which is, is more than one plastic in that little sachet around your cheese. Um, now that is very difficult to recycle in any of the normal processes, but something like the park bench can handle that. And, and you end up with a product that is durable, that 
I mean, it takes no energy to maintain because you don't have to scrub it, you don't have to varnish it, you don't have to paint it. You, you just dust it off every now and then. Yeah, Annabi, very briefly, or we're getting a crackling on your line, but very briefly, it, it, somebody once also said that it's the manufacturer's responsibility to see about recycling. Was that something that has come out in this conference, that m- more people, more industrial users of, manu- of plastic are factoring in its recyclability? Um, yeah, I, I believe, and, and, and that was pretty much the, the last panel discussion at the conference yesterday, was the sustainability. And, and it is the responsibility of the complete value chain, from the, uh, the uh, companies manufacturing the raw material, the converter that turns it into a product, the, the brand owner, the retailer, the consumer, and all of us have a huge responsibility to deal with that product as accountable as possible. So it's, it's uh, as with all things environmental, it's all our problem. Or it's, belong- it's a problem that belongs to all of us. Annabie Pretorius, thank you very much. Very best of luck. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nancy. Cheers. All the days. Annabie Pretorius, she's with the South African Plastic Recycling Organisation. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about them, they are sapro.biz, sapro.biz, and we will put that up on our Facebook page. You're listening to the Enviro Show. Well, finally, plastic is certainly not the only product or at least the only material that needs to be recycled. And to close in our green goodie feature, and don't forget if you've got a a green goodie product or service or anything that you'd like to tell us about, you're welcome. You can pop us an email at enviro at safm.co.za or do the Facebook thing. Um, But as I say, plastic is certainly not the only material that needs to be recycled. Textiles also need to find their place somewhere on the planet after they've been used. And putting her mind to that in a fairly big way is Krista Bardenhorst, certainly in a very creative way. She is uh, textile recycling through stitch construction, and we have her on the line. Hi, Krista. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Don't yes, know if you were able, able to hear just a little bit about our talk, uh, what we were discussing there about how to recycle plastic. I think everybody gets very um, exercised about recycling plastic. I think we don't think so much about recycling textiles. We think about whether or not it's in or out of fashion. And once it's gone, we hand it on, take it to a secondhand shop, and then it's somebody else's problem. Is, is textile recycling going to be a big issue, do you think? Uh, a big issue? Do you mean like... Um, is it going to be a big problem? Well, it's difficult to know in our country, being um, a country with lots of poverty, and I mean so many people with a use for second-hand clothing. Mm. So that's one of the things that I'm actually researching, the, the availability of textile waste in our country. Okay, you're researching it. And what have you found? Um, well, the, it's yeah. It's like I say, there aren't there aren't many sources available, and um, it seems like textile waste in our country actually is very little. You mean there's not a lot of people? Um, there's not a lot of textile waste at all, anyway. Yeah, well, not in the form of secondhand clothing. Okay. Um, the textile mills obviously produce produce their their. Um, the amount of waste. Yeah, okay. Well, I know that you're doing something very creative with what you have found that does need to be recycled. So stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. Krista Bardenhorst talking about textile recycling. Stay tuned. 
government has declared 2013 a year of intensified fight against fraud, corruption and maladministration. We are establishing a new National Anti-Corruption Bureau, a discipline code for all public servants and many other initiatives to strengthen our fight against this evil. Please join us by reporting allegations of fraud and corruption to the National Anti-Corruption Hotline on 0800 701 701 or to your nearest police station. Your cooperation is important in building a clean government accountable to the people. The Department of Public Service and Administration, working towards a clean government accountable to the people. And here on the Enviro Show, what we're talking about is textile recycling with a textile recycler through stitch construction. She's Christa Bardenhorst. So, Christa, you've been recycling what textiles and how? Um, well, yes, let me tell you, for, for um, my master dissertation in textile design, I um, developed a range of products through stitch construction, like you said, and I um, eventually came up with vessels, and I made new fabrics that I make into lumineers. So those are basically the, the outcomes of my, of my recycling. Okay, when you say luminaires and vessels, what you mean are bowls and lights? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Bowls, um, they are very decorative. They're not really functional. So they're a decorative ornamental piece. Mm. And then um, lights are obviously usable, functional pieces. And are you able to recycle any textile in this way, turning them into something else? D d does it matter if it's polyester or cotton or nylon or whatever type of fabric it is? Well, I um, try to use fabrics that go well together, like according to color and according to fiber and according to thickness. But I, I've used all kinds of fabrics through this method. So, yes, any, any type of fabric it works. This is, at this stage, it's sort of small, it's experimental, it's beautiful, you're producing sort of artworks. But do you think that this is, I mean, I go back to my original question, really, is this going to become a problem do you see that we could be looking at recycling textiles in a in a larger on a larger scale? Yeah, I definitely think it is something that that can be done. I mean, especially with um, factory offcuts, CMT um, offcuts, and the waste that that's produced on a factory level. For my study, I sourced um, on a very small scale from friends and from secondhand shops and. Just, just using all the old fabrics that I had. But um, if you go into that, I mean, it could become like an industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's a, a way to put the textile industry back in its back on its feet here in the West yes. Cape. Crystal, thank you very much. I'm going to give out your uh, website or at least your email address or which. Um, I have a Facebook page. It's okay. facebook.com slash meal design and okay. there's also images of the designs that I'm doing and people can con contact me through that. Okay, best way. Lovely. Krista Bardenhorst, very best of luck. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy, Take for care. having me. Pleasure. Krista Bardenhorst and it's Facebook, her Facebook page is Smeul Design, that's S-M-E-U-L-D-E-N.
S-I-G-N. Did I need to spell that for you? There you go, smell design. And I have to say, thinking about uh, Anna B hanging up her plastic bags on a washing line and watching them disintegrate, I remember having a, a, a dress or a jacket or something hanging up in a very sunny spot for months and months and months, and eventually the whole thing just fell apart, so I suppose it will biodegrade eventually. Well, on that note, we bring uh, the Enviro Show to a close with a very big thank you to the team. That's Cassie Lowers and Birthday Girl Kim Winter. And I'm Nancy Richards, and I will be back again with Otherwise tomorrow.